Brian, you're gonna you're gonna do a total half, right? Yeah, I agree. I was, really. Yeah, yeah, I was chuckling because I almost, you know, conversion to total hip almost doesn't do it justice, right? No, <laughs> it I know seems... you're like dictating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that just uh, it just doesn't seem right for the amount of mental anguish that's involved with a case like this. Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by the International Orthopedic Education Network's Rochester Revision Course, June 15th through 17th, 2023, at the Hilton Rochester Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this webinar sponsored by OrthoBullets and ION. My name is Matt Abdel from the Mayo Clinic, and I'm honored to be here with you, all of you today. I want to first introduce our illustrious faculty, which are on the panel here. We have Dr. Brian Springer from North Carolina. Say hi, Brian. Hello, everyone. Hi, Matt. Hi, Brian. We have Dr. Beth Gausser from the Hospital Special Surgery. Hi, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And we have Dr. Cara Cipriano from the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Cara. Hi, all. Nice to be here. As you can see, we have a wonderful faculty. These are uh, a, a world-class experts in revision hip and knee arthroplasty. And the reason we've selected them today to discuss this case, which we're going to go through shortly, is we have the upcoming ION Revision Hip and Knee Arthroplasty course at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, June 15th to June 17th. I encourage all of you to attend. This is a hands-on, cadaver-based revision hip and knee arthroplasty course. We have all the major industry partners and expert group of faculty who will be participating. You can see this is a very unique, hands-on, cadaver-based course. I encourage you to attend that. Registration uh, can be located on OrthoBullets or on the ION website. That's ION.net. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. We've got a short time together. I'm going to present a case of mine. I'm going to start uh, just sharing a disclosure. I do have an individual product development agreement with Stryker. Uh, so keep that in mind with this particular case. This is a case of mine. It's a case from just a couple of weeks ago. And we'll keep it conversational and open. So feel free to interrupt. I'll start with just uh, laying the field of this particular patient. This uh, case I selected is kind of a cool case, everyone. It's the first time I've actually seen one of these. It's a cup arthroplasty. So it's a 61-year-old gentleman. He was initially treated by the pediatric orthopedic surgeons at Mayo Clinic in the 60s, and he ended up undergoing this cup arthroplasty. He presented to me with left hip pain and a limb-like discrepancy. You'll see in the radiographs why he would have that sense. He initially had DDH treated as a child. He had a derotational osteotomy, and he actually had a Salter osteotomy of the pelvis. Unfortunately, in one of the surgeries, he had staph aureus infection. And we do actually have the operative reports from the 60s that indicate he did have an irrigation agreement for staph aureus. He actually did well for decades and then presented to me with a couple year history of pain in the groin, progressive shortening. And he's now utilizing basically a four centimeter uh, shoe lift, about a centimeter and a half, excuse me, an inch and a half or four centimeter shoe lift. Uh, my workflow is to get ESR CRP on every patient that's had a failed arthroplasty. And you can see the numbers here. That was an ESR of two, zero to 30 is normal at Mayo Clinic, and a CRP of 3.2, less than ACE normal at Mayo. And I do aspirate most of my hips and knees uh, just to have that extra data. And uh, some of the numbers are shown there, but we had 260 cells, 60% neutrophils, negative alpha defensin, and no growth to date for the cultures in 21 days. So with that, uh, Cara, I'm going to start with you. Uh, do you do any other workup for failed hip and knee arthroplasties? Let's just say we know it's failed. There's some reason. What's your standard workup for rule out of infection? Um, actually, very similar to your Matt. So I would start with the ESR CRP if either one is elevated or if I have any clinical suspicion, history of infection, so on, have a low threshold for doing the aspiration. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, beyond what you've done here, I wouldn't think anything else is indicated. His only infection that we know of was a very long time ago, um, and uh, he has other reasons for, for having pain, so I would leave it at this. Yeah, it, perfect. Thanks. I guess my thought, I always debate whether or not to get the aspiration with normal ESR or CRP. 
I think the staff aureus passed, even though it was decades ago, kind of pushed me over the top just to have that data. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, either a positive value on either of those serum tests and any piece of the history or mm -hmm. things not quite fitting together with their, their um, reason for failure. Uh, those, those are the things that, you know, like you would tip the balance and it's, it's not a big deal to get the aspiration. Yep, I think that's right. Well, let's show some x-rays and I got, uh, well, I'll give a little more history and then we'll, we'll uh, ask a couple more questions and we'll get to the x-rays. So uh, Brian, this poor guy, he had a left distal femur chondrosarcoma on uh, the same side. So he's got a revision arthroplasty of the knee on that side because he's got a megaprosthesis down there. Um, and the rest of his history is noted here. And uh, on my exam, I do the Coleman block test. I find those to be super helpful. And I actually found that he was about five centimeters short on the left side, the side we're going to operate on compared to the right. What do you tell him or talk to him about on a pretty profound limb leg discrepancy? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. I like to do the block test as well. You know, I think, I think there's the, there's the reality of leg length, you know, what you measure mm -hmm. on radiograph. And there's also the perception of what mm -hmm. people feel as well. And I think having them stand on, on blocks in the office is really important because that's a great time to have that discussion, you know, with them. Um, and I think you have to discuss with them, you know, the risk of nerve palsy after mm -hmm. this. I mean, five, you know, historical teaching two and a half centimeters to three, right? Five centimeters is, is, is pretty long. You know, you're going to have to make an interoperative decision based on a, based on a lot of factors, which I'm sure we'll get to, but number one, I think you have to tell them the risk. You have to tell them the risk of nerve palsy. That is very real in this situation. Now, I think there's some factors in this case that may lead you to get away with more than what, than what's traditional. Um, so always have that discussion with them and tell him that, uh, there may not be a likelihood you may be able to get him perfectly even just to set that expectation right from the beginning. Yeah, I think that's probably stated, Brian. I, I, I do use that kind of traditional, actually old school Mayo Clinic paper yeah. showing about two and a half to five, uh, three centimeters by Dr. Bernie Mori. Um, but this one, especially at the history of DDH, I'm even more bothered by by that. It's a little different if it's post-traumatic and they haven't been short for a while, but I was really bothered by the five centimeters the lifelong history of it. I talked to him, I said, hey, sciatic nerve palsy, full, that's in play here. And I'm going to probably get two and a half to three centimeters, but I'm going to make an intraoperative decision on, I use palpation. Beth, do you use any intraoperative nerve monitoring on cases like this or curl fours or, or yeah, how do you kind of judge that? I haven't. I don't think it's necessarily wrong to. I just don't. It's not in my workflow. I'm the same way. Um, once I get to this three to five centimeter lengthening, is when I start to worry about it, but um, mm -hmm. generally just feeling the nerve. Um, and you, you get a sense based on how tight it is reducing yep. the hip. Um, but I, I really do think that if you get used to feeling the nerve, you can kind of sense when it's when it's tighter. And, and I have from time to time, you know, gone down on how much I plan to lengthening based on that. Yeah. All, all great. Cap. Brian, you were going to say something? I was just saying, you know, this is, this is one of those cases where you know, you're very fortunate because all of his care was at Mayo. It sure would be nice to go back if he had access to old x-rays and see when he had that original cup arthroplasty, where was his hip center? Yeah. What was his length? Yeah. You know, has he, yeah. has he slowly migrated into right. this kind of position over time? Or was he, you know, did he have a high hip center to begin with? And it, it would be interesting to know most of the time we're not afforded that luxury. Yeah, Brian, I was I was also going to add just asking the patient if he has a sense of how much that limb length yeah, has changed point. in the last two to three years when he started having more pain. And I would tell him, you know, we'll make up as much as we can. My best estimate is we'll be able to restore whatever you feel like you lost in the last, you know, three, five years. Um, and but no promises and, uh, and and we'll do whatever we can from there. I agree with you about the the palpating the nerve. I've noticed sometimes even, even when I have to do release other tissues and so on, the muscles tighten up a lot faster than the nerve. And so sometimes you can get away with even having to release, you know, psoas rectus, whatever else. Uh, and the nerve is actually still fine, but, um, but you want to be really careful about that and definitely talk to the patient. Yeah, this is a good, you know, this is a really good, uh, topic to discuss. And one of the reasons I chose this is because I pontificated a lot on a limb length discrepancy for this particular patient. And Brian's right. We had the 
benefit of having all the x-rays basically from the 60s for him um hard copies up until the 84 85 and he has progressed i will tell you over the last five six seven years and he'll tell you that because he wasn't wearing a shoe lift and he started so i know that his nerve and limb had felt a little more normal for years prior so i felt a little more comfortable by that car you said something and i use it a lot and i don't think we talk about it in revision hip arthroplasty enough and that's releasing the rectus releasing sometimes i release the gmax sling releasing the psoas i think sometimes we're tethered by the soft tissues that actually tether uh the nerve you do oncology work too maybe some comments mm -hmm. on some of the releases you do that help untether the nerve or at least untether the soft tissues to bring hips down sure um so i usually start with the well you know the, the philosophy of feel what's tight and release it and and just from having done that a number of times i feel like what usually is tight for me so the anterior capsule is often mm -hmm. holding us up a lot of a lot of times these patients have hip flexion contractures as well it's important to recognize um so the anterior capsule uh the psoas uh i will release the rectus sort of I'll do a couple percutaneous releases anteriorly. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll release the rectus and whatever else feels like it's tight over by the ASIS. Um, and then I'll actually do the uh, the IT band distally. So for these patients that I expect, um, I'm going to lengthen them significantly. I'll prep out the entire thigh and then just palpate where I feel the IT band is really tight. Um, distally and sort of a few centimeters above the knee and just make a small incision there and release that percutaneously. It feels like if I'm lengthening them, it's the only humane thing to do rather than give them pain in a different location. Yeah, interesting. I have not done that, but I have uh, suffered the consequences of not doing that. So uh, it's a good little good learning point I picked up on there. I I, All right. I think I made it up, <laughs> to be honest. No. No, it's good. I think, I think it, it's true. I mean, there's a, a couple of patients, I think they come in and you bring them down like this patient we'll discuss here and they get a little IT frictional band syndrome distally. And it's not, it's not something that's outside the realm and to do it either percutaneously or I guess arthroscopy in the future. So um, all of those comments are very germane to now uh, what we all like orthopedic surgeons x-rays. So here are the presenting radiographs. I think we can all agree that it looks like it's migrated up there. It's probably not placed there. I love this x-ray for a variety of reasons. Uh, I kind of gave it away. It's a cup arthroplasty. Um, it's old school. We see trochosteotomy. We see the screws there. Uh, don't forget he's had a varus derotational osteotomy of the femur and also Salter osteotomy uh, of that stabum uh, pelvis. I should say. And so there's a lot going on here. Brian, I'm going to come back to you. Kind of what you see an x-ray like this. What are you thinking? Uh, have you seen a lot of cup arthroplasties? Do those screws in that trochanter bother you? And I'll show you uh, maybe just two views, and then we'll come back to the pelvis. Here's a, an AP hip view. Those are mag markers over there. And there's a, a very strange yeah. cross-table lateral. Uh, I mean, I was just elated. I was like a, a school kid when I saw this x-ray just out of excitement. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great x-ray. And although I'm the elder statesman on the call, I can't say I've done too many, uh, seen too many cup arthroplasties, right? I mean, I, when I trained at Mayo, we had a few kind of come our way that needed mm -hmm. revisions, but, but the migration, the superior migration on this one is pretty impressive, you know? So, you know, for me, this is a, this is a matter of just kind of systematically studying these x-rays, you know, starting on the acetabular side and trying to classify what this defect you know, is, and you can, you know, you can use a classification system if you want to, you know, Wayne Proposky is obviously most commonly used or just, you know, just be descriptive here, as you mentioned, superior migration, it's kind of migrated up and in, you know, <laughs> which would be kind of what I would consider to be like the three B, you know, type defect. Um, and then a matter of, you know, additional imaging that I would want if I was seeing this patient in the office without having any, any, previous imaging, benefits of a CT scan, things along those lines. The, your shoot through lateral is great. I would also probably get you Dave views on this as well, uh, just because it would give me a good idea, at least off the bat, what the integrity of my columns are uh, in this situation. Um, the other things that, that come to mind when I look at this, in addition on the acetabular side, um, you know, is status of the columns, the status of the anterior and posterior wall, but also, I think, as you mentioned, Matt, on the femoral side, you know, his mm -hmm. bone quality, 
right? I think sometimes you're so focused on the acetabular side that you forget about, you think the femur is just going to be a chip shot. And this is not a chip shot with kind of a door C type femur with those old screws in the trochanter that could potentially be a stress riser with having the previous derotational osteotomy and thinking about version control. You know, I think you don't want to be lulled to sleep by just having all your attention focused on the, on the acetabular side on this one. So those are things that kind of go through my, my mind when I'm looking at this initially. Yeah, Brian, you hit it right in the head. I'll tell you the cases of the big acetabular reconstructions I've gotten burned on, I've gotten burned on the femoral side <laughs> because I've been so hyper-focused on the acetabular side. We flip around, we have a periprosthetic fracture. I need version control. I wasn't planning for it. So I always take a pause and I was really bothered, particularly by this cross-table lateral, not an acetabulum, but on weirdly enough how there was no bow to the femur how it was like a door D on the cross table <laughs> lateral, but a door C on the AP. And honestly, not only the screws, but the position of the trochanter, right? Yeah. So then I started thinking, you know, he's five centimeters short. He's up and in. Do I need a trochosteotomy for exposure to protect the trochanter? And so all these things come into play, but I, you can't underestimate the femoral side in these big tab revisions. Beth, um, you know, thoughts from you. I did not get Jude radiographs, although I'm a big believer, as you know, in Jude radiographs. I'm actually not a big believer in CT scans. We'll discuss on this case. Um, I love this cross-table lateral. Maybe just some thoughts on what do you get? Would yeah. you have gotten Jude's here? Uh, you know, I, I, I like them, but like realistically, I do like getting a CT. <laughs> so I, on anything like a little unusual like that, I'm going to get a CT and really study that. But I love the cross table. That's in my, my typical order set. I, I get a lot of information from this cross table and you're just the, the biggest thing I'm getting aside from what you guys mentioned about the femoral side, which is all really good points that that is kind of the, the under, uh, underappreciated difficult part of this case, but you can see the posterior column is really thin on this, on this cross yeah. table. And, uh, I'd want to look like thoroughly through, both axial and coronal, um, as well as sagittal CT slices and just see, is that going to be supportive? I mean, it looks intact on the cross table, but yeah, it, it, there's something there, but this is one where if you go in without awareness of how thin that posterior column is, it could be gone pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. I think so. So just, I, just being aware of that and using it to your advantage, but not, um, not going right through it. I agree. And I put a little uh, cut a little lower in that femur so you could see that what what I call the door D bone on the femoral. I didn't put it in for the slice of the side, but for that one, you know, yeah. I, uh, I'm i not a big user. The guy's 61 scans. too. So it's a, a little. 61, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. So I'm not a big user of CT scans, but what I will tell you, I have gained a lot of appreciation for are these 3D reconstructions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, I'm not very good at reading CT scans, but getting a three-dimensional model like this, or actually now with 3D printing models where I can get in my hands and actually get a feeling of like, here's the notch, how thin is that posterior wall, how are the columns doing, where's the notch, and what this one, this one changed my entire plan, this exact image right here, because it was like he had this pseudo acetabulum right here, you see this? Mm -hmm. And it almost reminded me of like a crow four where I thought to myself, gosh, I should bring this down and in uh, a little different, but he saw this kind of pseudo acetabulum. So um, for a non-believer in CTs for acetabular reconstructions, this one I thought was very helpful for me. Carl, what are your thoughts on, what are you doing? Are you doing 3D printed things in your hands? Are you doing recons like this? What are your thoughts? So like you, I have a, a, a growing appreciation for the 3D recons. Um, it's kind of nice. I sort of, started appreciating them by accident because other people would order them and then I'd see them. But um, yeah, yeah. what I really want most for this guy is x-rays of his distal femur to see what's going on there. Um, Good call. That's uh, when I when I think about the femur, what's directly below it is really going to impact what I end up doing there. So. Good call. You're too, you're too keen for me. I didn't include those, but <laughs> he does have a cemented revision femoral component. He has a DFR a cemented stem, which is actually cut off, unfortunately, here. But there's not a lot of work in the room. And Dr. Cipriano brings up a great point because that influence, if I'm going module fluted taper, I'm going to have to go, it's got to be really thick in the diameter. It was like 27 millimeters when I templated it out. So it was going to be risky, risk cracking it. And it didn't really have an isthmus in there, but that would play into your reconstruction, right? If you're going to go short cemented, if it's not violated, 
or module yeah. polluted tape or, or to be honest with you, if I did an ETO, I was probably going to be forced to go modular fluted tapered or troke osteotomy. I was going to be kind of pushed more into that arm, which was going to engage distally near that revision stem. So I should have shown that x-ray. You're spot on because it did influence my decision making here. The other thing too, just in terms of preparing um, for pretty much any endoprosthesis with another, uh, like a megaprosthesis with another prosthesis going at either end of the femur, I have a very low threshold for doing a prophylactic plate on the side. These people almost by definition have terrible bone and they're high risk of fracture. And once you have that fracture, they're even higher risk for non-union. So I, you know, just at the end of these cases, it's it's so easy to throw on a prophylactic plate um, rather than risk having to come back and do a total theme. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I've leaned towards struts, maybe just because that's how I was trained. Yeah, sure. Not to bypass that, but strut or plating, I agree. And I, either I would say either not infrequently. Once a month, I do it, huh? Okay, good. Other thoughts on the x-rays? Because this is important. This is kind of the crux of it. So a lot of people would have gotten Jude views. A lot of faculty would have gotten Jude I think a lot of us found value in the CT scans, particularly 3D recounts. I could tell you, for, I did. I didn't put all the cuts in here, but I saw that on the standard sagittal coronal and axial slices. And this one, the pseudo-ASTAB, changed my plan here. Uh, we'll talk about exactly what we'll do in a second. Um, but the cross-table lateral is helpful, screw placement. And maybe let's just come back to uh, thoughts from anyone of, on the panel of this troke. Enough out of the way, in the way, at risk, kind of thoughts on the troke um, from uh, all of you? Yeah. I'd say definitely at risk. You know, I mean, totally. you can see how you can see how thin that is. And the other thing that you worry about with these cup arthroplasties, kind of like with the resurfacings, if they start to migrate, they create that kind of notch right down there at the base of the trochanter, yes. which really like puts that. And yeah. And then you combine that with the screw holes being there. Yep. And then you can, you know, you combine that with a really poor bone quality. That's a that's a huge issue. I think you got to think about that ahead of time and wonder if you're, you know, have something available should that troke start to go somewhere that you don't want it to go. And, you know, maybe that does have an effect on whether or not you consider an ETO or whether or not you consider kind of a, a you know, a, a cemented stem that might be a little bit safer that would diminish that risk of a, of a intrap periprosthetic troke fracture. Not to mention the challenge of dislocating that if it's that far proximally migrated and sort of embedded in the bone, getting it out. I mean, it's it, the whole, you know, it's putting the whole femur at risk, really, but especially yeah. that. Yeah, you're right, Carl. When you think about it, I mean, say if you have a cuff that's failed and the head's up there, we would knock off the femoral head, try to get trunnion out of there. But here, there's not much to knock off. You know, I mean, it's like, I got to somehow dislocate that entire hip. So um, those were all things I thought about, and I could tell you I was thinking about uh, an old school troke osteotomy with maybe a troke slide and reflective proximity, like how we do a lot of the uh, oncologic reconstructions. And uh, that was actually plan A. I'll show you what I did um, on this one a little bit later, but that was on my list to do there. Um, and then let's do a, let's move forward. I think and don't forget the screws. I mean, the screws look like the simplest part of the case, but those look like very old screws that may yeah. be tough to get out. So yeah. From our dual trauma trained, uh, <laughs> surgeon here. <laughs> it's got one of those really old screw heads. Like looks like I a know. flat head. <laughs> it was a flat head. I yeah. literally said, give me the flat head sterilizer for my house. That would be perfect. Cause we were opening the broken screw removal set. All right, let's do a poll. And we're going to talk a lot about the interoperative and what we did and hard removal and all that. So let's, let's do this poll. So we have four polls for the audience here. This first one, which we talked about a little bit was in addition to AP cross table lateral, AP pelvis, AP hip and cross table lateral affected hip, would you obtain any further imaging to guide your treatment? So let's just hit it uh, top down on my screen. Brian, you would get a CT scan. I know you, right? Yeah. So I would, CT again, and I'd yeah, CT and Judays. Absolutely. And that, that, to me, that 3D recon is, has been a game changer for pre-op planning for these cases. Totally. Yeah. Okay, Beth, what would you get? So I got those three extras, AP pelvis, AP hip, cross table lateral. What else would you get? I'm doing a CT. CT. Okay. How about you, Carl? Yeah, CT and the distal femur x-rays. Yeah, good call. Um, okay, good. So let's, uh, oops, let's, uh, let's go ahead and see what the, uh, the results showed 
um, several people, thousands took this one. So let's see, see what they, what they got. 131 since being posted this morning. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Okay. So let's take a look at the results of what people did since this was just posted this morning. So, um, 7%, I call myself as one because I put the case up current rate of deaths were sufficient. Additional x-ray views two. uh, a lot of people over half. So they get a CT scan. So I'm going to get an MR. I think they're all at HSS. Uh, <laughs> Somewhat more x-rays in a CT scan. Okay. So I think actually this is a, a rare area in which we have consensus. I think most of us agree with this complexity, get the rate of after discuss plus minus two days and add a CT scan. Would everybody agree? Agree. Okay, good. And then additional femur x-rays. I'm on it. Okay, good. So um, let's move forward. That was a great poll. So here's another question. So um, operative treatment. Uh, we're going to take this bottom up on my screen. So Carl, we're going to go with you first. So it comes in five centimeters short, getting around big, you know, two gate aids, big shoe lift. Um, what would you offer them? Would anybody on this phone call, on this webinar not offer surgery? I think everybody would offer surgery, right? I'd certainly offer him surgery. I'd, I'd also remind him that non-operative management is an option, but choosing from these, my recommendation would be conversion to total hip. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right, Cara. And there, would you agree that there are certain times where the erosion He's migrating up, gets more and more that you start saying, hey, I'm actually not going to push them in to do it, but encourage them to do it sooner than later. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is absolutely one of those. Yeah, that's good. Beth, your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think he meets all criteria for converting him to a total hip. And it's not not an, not an easier, straightforward total hip, but I think it's time for it. And uh 61, I, I think that's a, it's a, it's the best option for him. You're not going to do a resurfacing gear up there in New York, the uh, resurfacing <laughs> capital. He's, he's had one shot at some sort of resurfacing, huh? Yeah. I've, I've honestly never seen this, th that type of implant before. So it's a cool case for me to see. It's super cool. Wait till you see the pictures where we took it out and I'll <laughs> tell you an anecdotal story after too. Brian, you're going to, you're going to do a total hip, right? Yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I was chuckling because I almost, you know, conversion to total hip almost doesn't do it justice, right? No, <laughs> I know seems. you're like dictating. Yeah, <laughs> totally. yeah, that just uh, it just doesn't seem right for the amount of mental anguish that's involved with a case like this to call no it just question. a conversion. I mean, the prep yeah. and the surgery and the follow up, right, in all these aspects of these cases. Okay, let's see what the uh, let's see what the uh, group that's reviewed the case today shows. So, uh, whoa. Yeah, okay, I, I like that. 90% conversion to total hip. We're, we're seeing these polls live uh, as you all are as well. So that's good. I like this one. Outside my area expertise, best if I don't vote. So that's good. Uh, there was one comment I read today that said, send the Mayo Clinic. So that was fun. <laughs> you know what? Let's talk about this real quick. Hip arthrodesis. This, it, it's not crazy. I think he's probably past age. You know, he's 61 now. But uh, is that on anybody's radar? Would you consider hip arthrodesis, Beth? Not, not at this age. And honestly, I, I think the indications for it are becoming more and more rare as our implants are lasting longer and longer. Yeah. Probably the extreme young. I'd be curious to see what you guys think. But uh, I, think, I think the indications are getting, getting much slimmer. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done one. Has, has anybody done a hip arthrodesis? I've done takedowns. Yeah, I think I've, I've done, done one like, or two. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I think if you're really, if you really don't think, if you really think they have strong contraindications to total hip, I think patients actually do better with a girdle stone than an arthritis. Totally. Great point. So I think it's yeah. a, a better option if there's someone that you think is really at high risk if you put in hardware. I've never I really met anybody that, I've never really met anybody that liked one, that's for sure, you know which is why we end up doing some takedowns. The other thing on, on this gentleman's x-ray is his spine's not great either. I mean, you look at his no. spine on those x-rays and initially came up. I mean, I think he'd be pretty miserable with, a, with an arthrodesis, not to mention you wouldn't be able to gain any length on him. And you also That's don't right. have a lot of bone to work with in him, you know, given the risk of fracture and everything's looking pretty, pretty poor. Um, I think that could add challenge to an already tough situation. Yeah, I think that's right. The bone quality is poor. The quantity is poor. 
And at this age, I don't think we'd consider it. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, Curlstone, I mean, if, if you need a back, if you need something to bail out, it's Curlstone. It's not fusion in my mind for, yeah. for most of these patients. Okay. So um, there's the results of that one. Uh, that was that first poll. There's, we'll go to the there's, you know, a fusion can fail. It's, you can't really fail a girdle stone. It just sort of is what it is. So that's, that's a good way of putting it. It just kind of is what it is, you know? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. To okay. Convert. No, it's good. It's good. Okay. We got four poll questions. So this will be number three. Um, so if you choose a revision and then we can call it a revision of the cup and stem, I mean, it's basically acting like that. So this is a, this is a juicy question. Uh, Carl, I'm going to start with you. Uh, this is kind of what everybody wants to know, and I can flip back to the images. Uh, what are you going to do on the femoral side? Excuse me. What are you going to do on the acetabular side? What are you going to do on the femoral side and approach all of them? And maybe just give me your A and B plan because we're all going in yeah. with A, B, C, D on this one. Right, right. Um, so let's see. So starting with the approach, I use a posterior approach for these. It's um, and for pretty much everything, but especially for something like this. Mm -hmm. um, like you, I would I would probably think about uh, a troch slide mm -hmm. rather than more of an osteotomy or trying to get away without breaking it. I find those that works works well as long as you maintain continuity with the soft tissues proximally and distally. Um, it's those soft tissues and the scar that forms back around when you're done are going to be more reliable than any bone healing and is. Um, you know, it, at least at least there's uh, there's that to anchor the troke, and uh, in, instead of preventing it, it, it just sort of fracturing and floating upward. Um, as for the reconstruction method, this is sort of a unique case because you've got a perfectly shaped femoral head shaped defect in your pelvis, <laughs> and so I yes. think this is a great case to consider a bulk femoral head, um, but augments are certainly good as well. It's just with the lack of bone and that, you know, it really sort of invites that, that bone graft. Um, given that that's been a pseudoarthrosis for a while, or well, I, guess a, I guess it's still a joint of some sort, um, just sort of check out what that bone surface looks like, maybe red or touch it with a reamer or something, just to, just to kind of clean up the surface enough mm -hmm. that you get some, some exposed cancellous bone. Uh, and then, but yeah, generally like a cup, either augments or a femoral head uh, for the acetabulum. Um, then for the femur, I would think in someone like this with abnormal, proximal, uh, you know, abnormal metaphyseal bone and terrible diaphyseal bone, door, door D, uh, I would cement this every time. And, and like you said, you know, allograft, strut, or whatever plate distally um, to protect the gap between, you know, between the proximal and distal stems. You know, it's perfect. It was like, you're like in my head when I was planning this case. So that's exactly, I'm a posterior approach surgeon. I, uh, I do a fair amount, probably 10 to 15 troch osteotomies, uh, troch slides, troch flips, uh, not ETOs, you've write those too. Um, and that was my initial plan is to flip the trochanter proximally, take it as a nice wafer, have the abductors and the vases attached to it, um, cement the stem because I could control length, version, offset, wherever I landed my cup. So that was my plan there in addition to the door knee bone. And then I was thinking the exact same thing, like take out this cup arthroplasty just for the, for the uh, participants. You know, cup arthroplasties have no glue. They're just a cup on there. There's actually no glue. I mean, it is amazing when you think about it for a second, right? Like I went in there, they just slide right off. You'll see them. So the anecdotal story is at Mayo in the 60s and 70s, as they would collect these cup arthroplasties, they sterilize them. And they'd have whiskey parties with cup arthroplasties. <laughs> so they would take the used cup arthroplasties or sterilize and use them upside down. They never had any cement in them. They were just a cup on top of it. There's no cement or fixation. So um, I was thinking of taking that off, looking at the femoral head. If it looked good, if it's viable, I just put it right in there on block and use a structural allograph and read that out versus augments versus Kinsella's chips versus a cup cage. Um, so there's kind of all those thoughts on that side. Uh, Beth, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't have as much experience with the troke slide, um, but I think, you know, 
like Brian, I think alluded to avoiding a full ETO has some benefit here because the canal is so capacious. You said you templated out at 22 if you're going to go modular fluted tapered stem. And those are, that's like the kind of number where I start to get nervous where you're, if you're reaming up that big with that type of revision stem, you can ream the whole bone away. Um, and so my preference, like you guys mentioned, is to cement this at 61. I, I think there's a little argument against cementing him. Interesting question if we want to talk about this as a group is like, if it's a 40 year old, <laughs> you know, does that change? Mm -hmm. Are you still going to cement the 40 or 35 year old? Uh, but at 61, I feel very confident cementing him. Um, and I'm going to try to do it without, without doing a slide or ETO. I would want to, you know, have options available, but I think uh, if, as long as I'm just careful with the truck, I'd probably try to do it without. Yeah, the truck's out of the way. So, right, this is, if you're going to try to, this is the case to do it, you know? Yeah. And I would be okay. calling the Mayo people because I would have no idea if this is, this cap is cemented on or not. I've never seen this. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> uh, Brian, anything, anything different? No, I, I agree with everything that, you know, it's been said. I do, I do an extensile posterior approach. I would, as Beth mentioned, try and go without messing around with the trochanter, but would defer more towards a slide than a, than a true osteotomy. I think the, you know, the issue here is, is, is where you put your cup, you yeah. know, cause that, that's going to dictate uh, your leg length issues. But you know, that, that CT scan, when I was slipping through this kind of changed my opinion of this because it sometimes it, they're, sometimes they're so hard, they're almost easy. You know, where you, you almost really, truly do have a nice rim, although we know it's thin, but you almost really do have a nice circumferential rim around there in that native acetabulum that you could, that you could bone graft behind and, yeah, and be able to put your, be able to put your cup in here. But I think is what was alluded to, you know, we all take this stepwise jumbo cup, multiple screws, plus or minus graft, jumbo cup, multiple screws with augment, jumbo cup, cage, you know, if you need to. Um, you know, so I think we're all going into that kind of with those in our, in our toolbox. And then for me, hundred percent, you know, cemented on the femoral side in a case like this, it deals with the bone quality. It deals with any versional abnormalities you may run into from the prior osteotomy. And yes, I would do that if they were 60 or 40. I agree. I agree. And let's see what uh, the majority did here. And this is the suspense. Okay, so 41% did a large cup with screws, okay, that baseline. And plus or minus augment says needed, okay, good. Let's see what the other one was. Cup cage, plus or minus augments, that's good, right? If you can't get rotational yeah. capture. You know, I'll tell you the reason, the reason I was fighting the cage is we're already so high that put the cage, I, th I, I was worried you were gonna be compromising the abductor origins, particularly the neurovascular bundle superior gluteal. So that's why I, I was worried about a cage on this one. Um, but yeah, we're basically hemispherical cup, screws, augments, bone graft, uh, cage if you're in trouble, but I can try to avoid it just because of the risk to the abductors. Okay, that's good. So let's do the last question because I'm really keen to get to the interoperative and to get a critical feedback on the post-ops. So um, we talked about this at the beginning, so we can maybe abbreviate this conversation. You've seen the x-rays. We talked about the lengths. He feels five centimeters short. The x-rays are five centimeters short. I pension to you. I've had longitudinal follow-up on him since the 60s. He's not always been this short. really progressed the last five, six, seven years. What uh, quick answers. Uh, Beth, we'll start with you. Uh, what are you you, you got to go in with a plan. What are you targeting? What are you telling? What are you telling him? I think if I had to pick one of these, I'm going to be targeting like somewhere between 2.5 centimeters to, to three centimeters. I think that's a safe number. Um, and I, I tell him he, he's, he's not going to feel completely even. It's just impossible to get somebody like this to feel totally even. But if anything, he may feel long because he's been yes. so, for so long. That's so a good point. Just have him be ready for anything and say, Hey, this, we, uh, we're in a, we're in an extreme situation here. You know, this, we have to, we have to set your expectations to a reasonable level. Chances yep. you, you're probably going to end up with a different size shoe lift, but some sort of shoe lift. Yep. It's exactly, that is exactly what I told him. I said two to five to three, we'll get a smaller shoe lift. That's more manageable. I, there's a risk we drop your nerve. I'll do what's best for you. Yep. Cara, anything else? I, I would make no promises and tell him I'll, I'll get, as close as I can to whatever it is he's aiming for. Um, and 
hopefully a guy like this who's been walking around with this uh, is not going to be too picky. So these are usually patients who are very appreciative and not too high maintenance. Yeah, you uh, hit on something really special. That is spot on. He's a He's been through a lot. He's not high maintenance. He wants relief. He wants a functioning limb. And he was super understanding of everything I said. And you are right. When you've lived like this, you're very, in a good sense, tolerant of uh, something that can help you even if it's not perfect, you know? Brian, other thoughts? No, I mean, I think, I think his history is the key here, right? He's slowly migrated up over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm which to me gives you a better likelihood of being able to get him close, you know? So, so again, I'd have all the discussions that, that Beth and Kara talked about with the patient and that you had those discussions with him, but, but I'm feeling more confident with his history and that slow migration that I could get him down, you know, more where I wanted to be. And that's, you know, I think we've all been in these situations in the OR where you put their cup down where it belongs and you go to reduce them and it just won't go right? You yep. don't want to have to do a shortening. And that is one of the beauties of a cemented stem here, right? It's yep. the ultimate modular stem. Take your neck cut a little bit lower, sink it down a little bit more, get them reduced, you know, if you're really worried about it. It probably saves you from having to do any kind of other shortening osteotomy, which, which I think would be a disaster in someone like this with that bone quality and that capacious canal. That's right. And, and the revision knee below that, I didn't show you that's there too, yeah. right? Balancing all that. Okay, let's see what the group said, and then we'll have a robust discussion on intraoperative images and the postoperative radiographs. So um, let's just see that. Okay, so most people, 55% said, yeah, about two and a half, three, kind of that traditional Bernie Mori paper. Uh, a subset of people, 20%, maybe because they looked at the postoperative x-ray, said get the limb lengths uh, all the way there. Um, and then a variety of other smattering. So I told them my target's two to five, 2.5 to 3. The car said, no promises. I'll do the best I can. Uh, I'll prioritize stabil- nerve, number two, stability, and then number three, getting you what I can safely get to feel based on palpation. I don't monitor these patients uh, just because the false negative and false positive rates of these patients. So let's get into it. So I did a posterior lateral approach, and you have to shift your entire incision. Like whatever incision you make, just shift it on block several centimeters proximal because if you use your standard landmark, it's going to be way off. So I did a standard posterior lateral approach. I have remarkably, he had remnants of the posterior caps and short external rotator. So you can see, I took them off a of bone. I tagged them right away. Cause that's my only landmark, uh, safely for the rest of the case. I'm away from the nerve. So I take them right off a of bone. I tag them one and three are shorter, two and four are longer. I'm going to bring them back. And you can see there's the cup arthroplasty, which is right on. I'm looking for the back. So to your left is the leg to your right is the patient's head. Here's anterior, here's posterior. I'm standing in the back. So you can see that cup arthroplasty right there. And then this next image, uh, remarkably, so I did this under a <laughs> spinal anesthesia. Wow. And uh, I actually prefer spinals because I, I get the looser muscle tone. If you're going to do a general, I'd give muscle relaxation because I was worried about dislocating that. So I said to my trusted PA who's been with me for over a decade now, I said, uh, why don't you just give it a shot at gentle... So I got a, a, a bone hook around there. We just gently worked it around and it popped right out in standard postal out approach. And uh, I would, I'd never done this, but I had heard about it. So I just literally with my fingertips took that cup arthroplasty off. There is nothing on there. It's just remarkable to me. It's just literally placed on the bone. They nailed it by hand and there was that bone. And I thought to myself, this bone is dead. There is no way I can use this for bone graft. So what I ended up doing was there it is. I mean, it's remarkable. You can see how they sterilize these and drink whiskey, whiskey shots out of it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But yeah, so I took that off. Uh, no fixation whatsoever. And then I began reading. So I'll go back just one, two images here. Maybe I'll just go to that one. The cups are at the end. Um, so I established the teardrop. I got an intraoperative flow radiograph confirming that I was where I wanted to be. I evaluated the bone graft. And he had such a robust ADP dimension that I decided, and I was going to do a cemented stem because as Brian mentioned, I was going to whittle away at the femur until I got it down to get my length in there. I decided I was going to bring him all the way down and go for as anatomic hip center as possible. And so I did what I like to do is I circumferentially reamed up, identified the teardrop. I had that O-Frank retractor there. I started manually with Charlie Curettes to create a circle and burrs. And then I did small reamers 
I started just like we were doing curl four. I started 46, 48, 50, 52, creating the center and open that up until I got to this cup, which I can't remember the size off the top of my head. Let's just call it 60, 62. And until I was getting an A to P fit. And when I got that A to P fit, here's the cup in there. When I got this A to P fit, you could see that it ate up that almost that entire defect circumferentially. It didn't eat up that portion that went up and in. You could see that it ate up a good portion of it. And I had about 80% capture. Here's posterior, here's inferior, here's anterior, and a lot needly. I just had this little defect here. So I did something I didn't plan on doing. One, I brought the hip center all the way down. Two, a jumbo acetabular component had eaten up the vast majority of the defect. And I opted just a bone graft, which you'll see on this next one, bone graft through that defect right there. As Car mentioned earlier, I basically use those Charlie Curex to get punctate bleeding bone there. I touch uh, birded actually, cause it was kind of a deep oblong hole. And then I bone grafted that, I filled that in right there. And that's all I did. And then you can see here, we didn't talk about constraint, but we should after I show you the post-operator graphs. I've got a standard polyethylene liner. And the reason I did that is I have to find it sometimes difficult to reduce a dual mobility construct yeah. when I had so much going on. So I opted for a standard, uh, not a standard, I guess, there's a 40 millimeter polyethylene liner. And there are the post-operative radiographs, which I'll just show you the AP pelvis. The AP hip, the cross table lateral, and these didn't come across fully clear in that cross table lateral, but I'm going to go back to this AP hip and just show you those radiographs. And maybe I'll just comment on it and get input from all of you. So you can see this jumbo acetabular component here. I didn't get it all the way down, but I'm just four or five millimeters up. So that's kind of my target on some of these four, five, six centimeter ones. That's where I had good A to P bone. And you can see with that cup, I was largely able to eat up that defect. And you can see on this next one that I still had this oblong defect where that had eroded there. I filled it up with about 200 cc's of bone graft. And the key to me was getting these fanning screws. So I had these two uh, 80 millimeter screws that bypass that bone graft into host bone. And then I have a variety of other fanning screws that you see on this cross table lateral here that are going, these are two in the column that are going around and kind of protecting that. And then a mistake I had, I was not used to these capacious canals and having free access to cemented stem. So you can see I did the reverse mistake. I leaned to posterior and was pointing anterior with my cemented stem, just because you're not used to such a capacious canal and the troke so far out of the way. Um, and you can see a touch of valgus, not even varus, but I stayed away from that troke canter there. So um, with that, I'll take thoughts criticisms. Beth, we'll start with you. Yeah, it looks, it looks phenomenal. Um, I love how many screws you got in. I think that's a really good point that, you know, with these type of this bone, you know, you don't really, we haven't studied <laughs> the long-term outcomes of these cups. I can only imagine what the bone quality was like. So I think backing it up with tons of screws is a, is a good idea, which you did. I'll just make one, one plug as the, as the junior person here on the panel one thing that does make these cases, it takes a lot of the stress and the planning out is, is, you know, either what you mentioned before, doing it with a 3D model and practicing in the lab ahead of time, that basically take, you're doing the case ahead of time and you know what size you're going to get, you know, okay, I, I think it's going to be a 62 plus or minus two, and then you, you know what you're aiming yeah. for. And then alternatively, using robotics and using 3, 3D planning that way, you can kind of do that on a computer screen as well. Um, but this is this looks absolutely phenomenal. And I, I think, you know, as far as this, the STEM, I think using that type of STEM is such a good idea because you have so many options. And so your cup is gonna go where the cup's gonna go, where there's bone, where you can really play around with it is this type of uh, polished tapered STEM that you can sink or leave proud and you can really control your um, your leg length with that. Yeah, I was going to show, I, uh, I ended up having uh, put the stem down farther and Calcar reamed several times to bring that down. So I got intentionally all five centimeters back and I didn't think I need, I was going to, but basically I was targeting two and a half to three, three and a half. And once I got the hip in there, I put my trial femur in there and it was like, wow this was, I don't want to say easy, but it wasn't hard work. It kind of went in there. I palpated the nerve. It felt good. I got an intraoperative x-ray. I drew my line. 
And I said, all right, I had actually overcorrected. And then I put the stem a little farther, took out another five, six, seven millimeters of bone, and it was zero millimeters. And I said, I'm going to take this. The nerve felt good. All my stability checks felt good. And I said, all right, I'm going to take the five centimeters. And to the points you all made at the beginning of this, he had been longer for a long time and eroded up there. So I felt comfortable doing that. And uh, he was nerve asking attacked after. Cara, your thoughts on screw placement, fanning? Would you have done an augment up there? Uh, where I put the cup, all those things? Yeah, you know, as long as you have that, even just a, a little bit of a rim fit, I think that's the most reliable, um, you know, that's excellent. And I, I like the bone grafting in back of it, but the rim fit is key. And I think the screws are key as well. So um, I think that looks terrific. And it's... Um, uh, I, I'm not oh, I'm overly surprised that you got all the length back. Like Brian was saying before he's, and like you just said, now he's been that, you know, he's been out to that length before. Um, and, uh, and sometimes often they'll, they'll sort of surprise you on that. And it looks like he's actually got a lot of space, still can't see the, the distal femur replacement, but that's a good thing. He's got some space there to work with. You have the cement restrictor. So that's important. So yeah. And the troke is there. So I think it's a win. Troke is there. I just saw him for a six weeks recheck. We didn't have time to upload it. Um, and we, we could briefly talk about kind of weight bearing status, but I, I took it easy on his weight bearing because of yeah. the, the ass tabular side. What would you have done there? 50%, 100%, 75%? I, you know, I was going to ask you um, what you did with his weight bearing, but yeah, I'll either somewhere between toe touch and 50%, depending yeah. on how big they are, how reliable they are. Sometimes I'll try to explain to PT that I'll make them toe touch, but allow them to put more on if that's what they need to mobilize. Mm -hmm. So it's a little that's bit right. of a gray area, but like, you know, toe touch, but if they need to do 50% to get out of bed, like I'd rather them do that. So um, it's, uh, I hope that doesn't confuse people too much, but I think it mobilizes the patient. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I did 50% on this one because when this went in right here, it's funny how that cavitary defect looks like there's like no superior home and no superior support, but you can see it was just this little area I had actually prefer to get access to it. It's actually way up and in there. It's such a good rim fit, except for maybe this 10 or 15% that I went 50 and those screws uh, kind of fanning everywhere and all were good purchases, which you can see here. And I'll make a quick comment. I did 50% for the first six weeks. I see them all at six weeks, make sure the x-rays look good. Nothing's migrated. And then I progress them there. These are the screws. So these are the two going up the columns. So they're going up here. Here's the notch right here. This one, I like to go posterior. I don't go by coracle. This one is going to be an inferior screw, another inferior screw, another screw is really going to the spine. So that's kind of that spanning screw placement uh, that we did. And this is a revision cop, I thought, in this situation. Brian, yeah, you're... If, uh, if, ahead, the screw purchase, if the screw purchase is good, I'd be very confident in that. Yeah, no, I, I love, I mean, I felt good about them, particularly this screw. I think we, we don't talk about the spine screw enough. Yeah. That one, as long as you're, you know, slow with the drill and truly measure it, that's usually giving you just, it's 20, 25, but it's all great bone, you know? And then these ones, I initially had screws. And I didn't like the length because I wanted to bypass it more. So I, I took them out and I actually used these, these uh, revision longer screws to bypass and get some purchase there. So it was going through the bone graft in there. So I felt felt good about those fanning screw kind of placement. How long are those? These ones are 80. Mm -hmm. They're from the I from the pelvic, the pelvic set because that tabular set ended at 60. So I took out those 60s and put the put these ones in. I did that. I did that for you, Beth, for the trauma world. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Brian, your thoughts? I no, I, I agree with with everything that's been said. It, you know, it looks great. I think. You know, the residents fellows often ask, how many screws do I put in a primary? I say two. They say, how many you put in a revision? I say as many as I can get in, yep. you know, every hole, if it's safe to put them in. I don't think you can be yep. too, too overly uh, cautious by doing that. And I love that. I love the inferior screws below the equator on these just to give some counter, you know, some counter fixation on these. The, uh, I think, you know, to the point that was brought up earlier, as far as, you know, where your cup placement is. I mean, I think we, we tend to have a lot of discussions about you know, getting that down at the teardrop at the native hip center. But I will tell you, I will take putting that cup where the bone is every single time yes. and accepting a little bit of migration. 
a little bit of superior hip center on something like this, especially knowing I can make those adjustments on the femoral side. Cause otherwise, I mean, as you mentioned, you're getting a phenomenal A to P pinch here on this. You bring that down, you lose a, a little bit of that superior support. And you're having to put an augment up there. So the two questions I was going to ask you, Matt, is one is I think you mentioned using either intraoperative x-ray or fluoroscopy just to identify mm -hmm. where either your reamer was or before you started reaming. Cause I've certainly been fooled on these before thinking I'm somewhere that I'm, that I, that I'm not sometimes in the operator and sometimes a little bit higher, you know, than where I thought I was, especially on this plastic. So I'll oftentimes put a marker in the acetabulum, shoot an intraoperative x-ray or use fluoro. And then the other question I wanted to ask you is because People ask this all the time, and I think they tend to overthink it. What did you use for your bone graft? Yeah, so both both great questions. So a couple of things on uh, where I placed it. The reason I placed it a little high was one, their bone was there. And two, I was getting worried I was going to get really long. Like I was not going to be able to reduce it, even going to the lesser trochanter and bring them down. Bring them down. So that's why I opted to give myself a little more five, six, seven. And that was on a templating decision. So that's one. Number two, I usually will expose a teardrop leave a retractor in there, and then I'll get an x-ray. And most of the time, I will not get another one with the, with the trial. I'll get the real cup in and get another one. On this one, I can't recall if I maybe reamed, got a another x-ray with trial just to make sure I was in good position. I don't think so. I think on this one, I got the cup in, got a couple of screws, felt comfortable, was fixed, got x-ray, loved it, filled up the screws, and then went on. That's what I did here. For the bone graft, I naturally should have used the femoral head, but you saw that picture which disgusted me, this one. So I couldn't get myself to use it for that reason. And number two, he had a previous history of staph aureus. Yeah, and I thought to talk. myself, if it was going to be anywhere, it was going to be right there. <laughs> so I took one path, three cultures. I cut off that head. I got rid of it. Uh, and then I, I used uh, bone chips. Okay. I used allograft al chips. Yeah. And then morselized it, mixed one gram of banco, put it in there, and then packed it in pretty tight. That's kind of the end of it. So let's end with uh, maybe this one. And I'll take any closing comments from the faculty. Brian, I'll start with you top down. Yeah, I think, you know, great case, Matt. I think this really speaks to the utility of a jumbo cup with multiple screws, right? I mean, I think in my mind that, you know, we talk about, cups and augments. We talked about cups and cages and they definitely have their role. In my mind, at least I've seen an uh, uh, even more confidence just in using these, these jumbo cups with multiple screws, particularly I think in the past, you know, five to seven years. So this, yep. in this case illustrates it better than any case I could think of. Yeah. You're, you're too kind, Brian. I think that's right. I think with contemporary technique, contemporary implants, revision cups, and really filling up the screws, uh, that that we do, we can get a lot done with the jumbo acetabular component these days. Good. Yeah. Beth, closing comments from you. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think I think the planning is so crucial here. I mean, you probably planned more hours for this than you spent actually operating on the case, and that's uh, like hugely important to have everything available. Um, I. I I imagine that this, this one, you probably had multiple cup options available in case you didn't get good purchase with this, you probably had some modular options available. Um, and then some multiple options on the STEM side too. It's, it's nice being at a place where you are, that all that stuff's in house, but it's you know really about planning that, make sure that it's yeah. all available for you and this outcome couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be better. Um, so well done. Yeah, thanks Beth, you're right, you gotta have option A, B, and C, and we had B and C available for both Estabum and, and cup side of it. Final comments, Cara, please. Um, just would add that I, I love Brian's point about putting the cup where you have the bone and not getting obsessive about where the hip center is. Like it's it's nice, it's, it's important in its own way, but really your primary goal is to get a solid cup in place. And if you can get rim fit, then just go with it and, and make up what you can in other, um, in other areas. Uh, and then just, you know, it's great to have a cage on hold that doesn't hurt. Um, you know, good idea to have it available. But just to, if at all possible, the cage is not the solution. It's just the reinforcement to the solution. When you think about yeah. how, that's, how that's holding on, you know, the, 
the best bone you have is typically around the area of the acetabulum itself more so than proximally that um, iliac wing gets pretty thin. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to have it, but it's not the first answer you should think about necessarily. I think planning like this and, and trying to use the bone you have to the maximum effect, and then again, reserving the cage at, to reinforce it, uh, but it's not the long-term solution if you can help it. Yep, all points uh, well taken. Thanks, Carl. Well, thanks to uh, Dr. Springer, Dr. Gaussian, and Dr. Cipriano, uh, this expert faculty. I really enjoyed this. Uh, it's been fun. These are always fun. Uh, thanks for the insights. I learned a lot on it as well. Before we close, I'd like to encourage uh, everybody once again, uh, we've got limited participation available for this hands-on cadaver-based vision, hip, and ER plastic course at the Mayo Clinic, sponsored and run by ION, that's I-O-E-N, that's ION.net. That's June 15th to June 17th at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Starts Thursday late, intentionally, so you don't have to lose another day. Goes all day Friday and ends Saturday midday, Cognizance Father's Day weekend. That's why we end at midday. So I encourage you to register for that. You've got an expert group of faculty, wonderful cadaver-based demonstrations, and live activities for participants. And we have all the industry representatives there. So uh, many thanks to ION and OrthoBullets. And we look forward to seeing you in Rochester in the near future. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.